Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. Welcome back and happy International Women's Day. For today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Freed and Anika Tariq from Camp 4. Karen and Anika are vastly experienced leaders with a wealth of global Salesforce experience, having been in the ecosystem for 25 and 20 years respectively. Karen is obsessed with employee experience and talent development, having been Blue Wolf's head of global talent management. Karen joined Blue Wolf as one of their very first employees and led the team through acquisition as they scaled from 200 to 1,500 employees globally. Anika's passion is building and developing high-performing Salesforce practices with cultures centered around employee and customer success. Anika is recognized as a partner trailblazer and listeners in Australia will know her for the work that she did as Blue Wolf's MD for APAC. But she has also led IBM's global Salesforce center of competency practice across markets like the Middle East, Latin America, Japan, and APAC. Through this episode, we touch on a range of topics covering leadership, culture, talent development, burnout, self-doubt, tough skills, and more. Karen and Anika are dedicated to Camp 4's mission of impacting 1 million lives by empowering people through Camp 4 programs. And I cannot wait to see how that journey evolves. I really hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. What first attracted you to the world of Salesforce? And what kind of roles have you played ever since? Yeah, so I serendipitously fell into Salesforce. It was about, I want to say 2005, where I was working in a food manufacturing company, but I was responsible for marketing. And, you know, just as a diligent marketer would do, you have to get data to be able to target certain customers. I was having a lot of problem with our CRM system and our data, and I was frustrated by that. So I marched up to the president's office and I said, you hired me to change marketing in this company, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, we, we've got some other issues that I need to solve for to be able to get to that place. And they said, all right, well, figure it out and, and let me know. And so, you know, long story short, we had had a CRM system at the time, Siebel, and Salesforce was up and coming. And even that time, I don't think it was a platform yet. It was a CRM system. And I ultimately presented to the board that we should, you know, move Siebel to Salesforce within our company. And so they approved that. And, and I implemented Salesforce in my company and did that globally across Brazil, Switzerland, Germany, and the States. And without knowing it, I was consulting, right? I was gathering requirements. I was ended up doing some of the build alongside our consulting partner and I thought, there's something to, to this. This is really exciting. And as much as I really had, you know, initially thought about a career as being a CMO or developing my marketing skills, I saw this as a technology platform that was going to change the industry and in, in, in the space. And that's, I think, ultimately, it might have been a trip to, to Dreamforce very early on when there's like 800 people. And I have pictures of Mark and I. I, I look like a kid. Mark is quite young as well. You know, in, in reading his, Mark's books and looking at his leadership and understanding what the potential for this technology had and the way that it can impact companies, like I saw how it impacted my company, that's when I said I want to go into consulting. And in fact, Karen and I were just chatting. The way that I met Blue Wolf was... I took a course to get certified in Salesforce in New York City, and Blue Wolf was a company running the course. And so that's how I ended up in consulting and landed, you know, really a, a dream job working in New York City and becoming a, a consultant, which was a long, you know, a really long-term goal of mine at the time. Yeah, awesome. And and Karen, I think you, you both met at Blue Wolf and, and Anika joined through coming from the, the, the customer side and, and having a for getting into consulting. What about yourself? How, how did your, your Salesforce journey start? So I actually started at Blue Wolf in 2001 
And um, I was their first employee. And at that time, we were a staffing company. We were finding talent and we were doing Oracle DBA work. And someone comes in around 2002 and they have, turns out to be uh, Glenn Stoffel, my co-founder, but he has opportunities to implement Salesforce. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to start staffing people on Salesforce if this guy wearing a backpack lands a couple more deals. Well, quickly enough, he started landing enough deals and I I was also the CEO of my own home and I was on my second child. And I saw some flexibility in the idea that if I learned how to configure Salesforce, I could be hands-on keyboard and CEO at home raising kids. So I switched from staffing to the other side of the house, which eventually becomes the Blue Wolf Consulting Company. And, uh, and from there on, it was it. That was it. I was a consultant. I was a project manager. I was a solution architect. I was an engagement manager. I sold. I implemented. I loved it. I loved every one of my clients. I used uh, problem solving, met business requirements, understood business outcomes. And at back then, 2003, I mean, there was no UI to what we're looking at. And uh, it, it provided some great flexibility and creativity. So I, I took it at that and, and haphazardly became, I mean, I loved, loved the platform. I loved what it was capable of doing, similar to what Nika saw. I saw that it was going to change businesses, but what I didn't realize is how many lives it was going to change. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess, and, and you both would know uh, more, more than the most, having seen that journey from, from a, I guess, an early stage of Salesforce the kind of uh, journey other people have been on as well through the ecosystem. Um, so that's interesting that you actually started kind of on the talent management side, because I know, obviously, you, you mentioned you played lots of different roles over the years, but but you did um, organizational culture, talent management, like uh, talent development. They, they were things that you were passionate about, but um, it seems that you were kind of passionate about them from an early stage in your career as well. But what was the trigger moment that you moved and focused back in on, on that kind of piece and, and wanting to, to be across the kind of talent management, talent development at Blue Wolf. Yeah, so it, it was interesting because I was at my peak. I was implementing, at one point, we were implementing Salesforce and, and the CEO at the time says, what if you worked inside? We have a strategic initiative for us to start developing talent. And I actually thought, no joking, that he did that purposely to make me feel old because it was a bunch of new new college grads that were coming on. And I was already a mom. I knew about dental. I had I at one point didn't want to manage anybody. I was I just wanted to be an independent. So I was like, are you doing this to make me feel old? But but the funny part was he knew I was going to be passionate about giving back and helping others. And what happened, so this group of college graduates that we were going to introduce into Salesforce and we were going to introduce them into what it's like to become a world-class consultant and get them ready for that. Uh, it actually, because it was a strategic initiative, because we had the go-ahead from the executives to build this new talent in a growing market, it turned out to be the most impactful moment in my career. And um, I had the most creativity. I got to watch their eyes light up. I got for them to understand what business business essentials were like, why there's acumen that sits behind it, why methodology is important, and why this technology can be a game changer, not only for businesses, but for people as well. A lot of time, um, a couple of things that led up to that was I had a really bad habit of hiring my clients. They liked what we were doing and the way we were doing it. So I think he, was, he wanted to turn that down and just be like, let's just create our own path of, of talent through this ecosystem. So it was extremely rewarding. It actually synthesized my passion and my purpose. So I'm a people pleaser. I'm of service to others. I'm a continuous learner. I'm a creative problem solver. And now instead of focusing all that on someone's business outcomes, it's focused on talent. It's, it's very interesting to think because back then, you really obviously, apart from hiring your clients, um, you probably didn't have much option but to build internal capability and, and bring grads through, right? Because the technology was so new. And I feel like we've gone through this journey of, of you had to do it then. And then there, there's been the period of years where there's been a lot of kind of, you know, taking resources from other partners and, and, and now right. we're back at that same stage, right, where you've got no option but to, to bring 
bring grads through and, and train people and cross train people. And I guess you, you're now at both ends of the journey as well because you, you're you're solving the problem again externally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We are we are in the same situation we were with only a bigger deficit than we were before with Salesforce having so many different clouds and diversities and the talent gap has expanded as Salesforce has expanded, which is great. But it is, it's a passion of mine to help people and, and for Camp 4 to help people start or develop their careers. There's so many different career opportunities inside of the ecosystem. And if we can get more people, more diversity, more opportunities, if we can lower the barriers to entry on this amazing opportunity that Anika and, and I just stumbled into, it would be amazing. You know, I did it 20 years ago. Let's, let's uh, rinse and repeat. I think about why I joined Camp 4 why I'm doing what I do today. And it really does come back to reflecting upon the opportunities that I had in my career. So when I started at Blue Wolf, I came in as a consultant and a project manager. And I, you know, went up the ranks to developing and leading teams and, you know, helping us develop our global PMO and being a salesperson or engagement manager and ultimately landing in Australia where, you know, Ben, I met you how many years ago? Uh, Six or seven, I think now. Six or seven years ago. And I remember once chatting with Karen, probably on a phone call where I'm like, Karen, I need your help. And I'm in Australia. I have this issue. And she, she said, I don't know if you remember this, Karen. You said, did you ever think in your wildest dreams like, could you have predicted this career path that you end up being the managing director in Australia? <laughs> Do you remember that, Karen? I remember when you were getting ready to go. I, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. You've always had your eye out on the world. Thank you. Thanks. But, you know, it, it's it's that opportunity that I had. And it goes back to what Karen's saying. It's It's helping develop talent and helping people seek those opportunities across the globe that makes me excited to come to work every day. It's truly incredible that the progression that you had from consultant, not knowing Salesforce to MD in Australia. And, and I guess Karen and the learning development and the programs and all the things, the things that were put in place enabled that, but it's also fairly unique now, right? We don't see that too often that people stay with a company so long um, and, and you know get that progression. We see so many people jumping ship and moving around and to get that progression by moving. So I guess that that was probably a culture thing, right? So um, at, at the very top, there was this insistence that you know we build a culture of learning and development and and giving people opportunities. Who who is responsible for for driving a culture in an organization? So I think an organization has a responsibility to the culture, but is not responsible for the culture. So the organization, a tough skill if we want to talk about that, a tough skill for an organization is to create a safe space and a platform and a place for culture to thrive. That's what they're responsible for. They are not part of the culture. They are, I, I think in all, in all ways, there's always going to be an action. A company is going to take an action and the culture is going to have a reaction to it. And those companies that respect and aware and are acknowledge that there is a culture, then they can move and gracefully work with them. But when, when they, a lot of times you see leadership make a decision and the ramifications you can hear echoing through the culture and they go, oh, it's not such a big decision. They'll get over it. It's a fracture. It's, it's remembered. And, it, and you start to lose trust with the culture. So I think there's a really fine balance between an organization's respect for culture and awareness of what of what power it has. We have a saying at Camp 4, success moves at the speed of your talent. Your talent is inside of that culture. So if yeah. you think you're going to deploy Salesforce and add in a couple of fields and change a process without that without that culture agreeing and understanding what that change is and what's in it for them, it's not going to happen. It's going to be a great on time, on budget, 
deployment that it was not adopted by that by that culture. Now we, we can't um, we can't touch on consulting without um, uh, there is a very hot topic of um, and and not just in consulting now but through the whole pandemic and and you know overworking and burnout and things like that. So you, you both spent uh, lengthy periods of time working for a consulting business and and in the consulting field. Is is burnout something you were aware of um, in the early days of consulting, right through to more recently? And how how did you kind of approach that or, or safeguard against it both personally and for team? Well, you know, I was thinking about this topic. It is near and dear to my heart. I've experienced burnout personally. And, you know, I, I think we probably all have, especially in the last two years. So if you look at how the World Health Organization defines this, it's defined as a syndrome associated with chronic stress at work that goes unmanaged. So again, chronic stress, right? That chronic, that continuous, and it's unmanaged. And, and I, I would say, look, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't have any credentials, right? This is research that I've read online, but Burnett has three components. And I just, you know, as we're talking about it, I felt it was really important for us to understand this because part of this and how we deal or manage burnout is to recognize what burnout is and to understand it. And those three components are first, exhaustion. So physical and emotional exhaustion. When you feel like you're really drained or, you know, you may be like, gosh, every day after work, I have to take an hour long nap. I just feel so exhausted. That's, that's one, that's exhaustion. The second component is feeling cynical about your work. So if you're typically a high performer, you're excited about that next project, you know, you're going to work and you're ready to go. And you start to switch from that attitude to doing maybe the least or the bare minimum and just getting by and ticking the boxes. That's another sign. And finally, the third component is shame or blame. So you start to think like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not good at this? How come I can't handle this work? And what, you know, Karen and I were talking about this. When I when I started seeing burnout, it was too late. I, I was on the third component. I thought, what's wrong with me? Why can't I handle the stress? I've done this in the past. You know, why is this so difficult now? So, and, and I think about, it, it, was, it was difficult because I had always been that performer that would rise to the challenge and rise to the occasion. And I find myself just completely exhausted and going, what's wrong with me? And until I realized what that was and took action upon it, which is, you know, what I recommend, right? So things like checking in with yourself, making sure that you're taking periods of rest, talking to your manager. If you are feeling overwhelmed, you know, have a conversation with your manager to say, look, can I take a week break? I know my vacation's not till May. Like, may I take a break now? I think those things are important, but it's also important to recognize that amongst teams in consulting, you know, Karen, you and I talked about it. You can be on a project that's a year too long. You can be traveling. Like we had teams that would travel from Hong Kong to Singapore, Hong Kong to Singapore, back to the States for a year. And between work and travel, you're pretty much getting a day off. That is exhausting. And it's important that as stewards of the organizations and as leaders of the organizations, we're taking a look at this and you know, making decisions and helping people balance that work, work-life balance so that they don't burn out. Karen, you had a lot of insight into this, I know, as we were chatting. Yeah, you know, you talk about like what actually causes burnout. There's a lot of physical things about time management, but just because, you know, when you when you start looking, especially in consulting, you're looking at full-time, part-time, half-time quadrants of, you know, how do you fill capacity across projects? And it used to be like, oh, you know, you can run two projects simultaneously. That sounds doable. There's enough hours in the week. But if those are happening, the cadence and the flow of your projects will cause burnout. If I'm running two projects that are kicking off or, or where it's high intensity at the exact same time, that's like 
that's harder than running two projects that are ebbing and flowing at different times. So the way that the projects stack up, the, uh, the politics inside of the project, the, the things that really drain you the most, it's not the configuration, it's like what's happening. And as well, so then you take cadence, you take flow, you take environmental factors like politics, and then you take your life, the milestones in your life. I try to balance two projects with no kids, not a problem. Try to balance two, um, two projects while buying a house, bigger problem. While having an aging parent, while dealing with an illness, all of those things will cause burnout. So I think it's a manager's responsibility also to know just enough about their employees, to know where they are in their life cycles and what's happening externally, and to feed into that and, and read it well and, and be put up boundaries for our employees because our employees don't always know to do it. And what, what about um, current, like in terms of being a business owner and the CEO of a business then and like founding a business? Um, because a lot of people have this concept of like founders, you know, need to work X amount of hours and, and like if, if you're passionate and you've got this kind of, um, you know, this, this plan around a business, like you kind of throw your whole self into it. But like, because you can always do more work, right? As a founder, there's always something to do. And I guess it's the same at a senior level as CEO, MD of any business, right? But yeah. how do you manage that personally then to make sure that, because you don't have a manager per se, right? Telling you, you know, to be aware of, of your, your time, but how, how do you kind of make sure that you're aware and, uh, and balanced? Yeah, so I, that, that's a great question. At, at times you don't want to, you don't want to unplug, you don't want your, there's a lot of fear in doing that. But at the same time, I, I have two rules. Like if this can't, if I don't have a team around me that can run efficiently when I'm not here, then I have the wrong team. And it's insulting to them if I don't trust them to do it, number one. Number two, I specifically remember saying, it's not what you say and it's your actions. So if I want people to unplug and I want them to not burn out, then I have to show them that I'm willing to do the same. Mm -hmm. So I would call my team and I'd say, I am, I am off this week. If you need to reach me, you know where and you know how, but I'm really trying to respect my boundaries. So I learned to respect yours. And, and I did it. And I loved having time off. I did. I half-assed it a couple of times and it's, you know, you, I did two things really poorly. I vacationed poorly and I managed deals really poorly. So I learned pretty quickly that, um, you know, stay single focused on what you want. Yeah, that's such good advice. I think so many people try to balance the two. I'm one of them. Um, and it, yeah, it, it just doesn't work, right? One of the programs I did put in place was a sabbatical as well to help with burnout. Every certain number of years, you got a month sabbatical. And in the States, that's like a pretty big deal in addition to uh, your, your regular, we didn't have time off. But inside wow. of that, people came back and they were more engaged and they had spent either time with their family or traveling or learning something new and different. And it was just, it was a really powerful program that we put in place and people wanted to stay on longer just to get to that sabbatical. And I think it's really important too, as organizational leaders, that you create the safe space and the environment where you talk about these things, you have transparency. I find that a lot of larger organizations tend to talk about it at a corporate level, but when it comes down to having that one-on-one -on -one conversation and checking in with your employee to say, how are things going? Now, really tell me, you know, let's have the conversation. You'll find that people are willing to be more open and honest. And, you know, it's two parts, right? The responsibility is on, on yourself to understand and recognize some of these signs to say, you know, maybe I need a little bit more work-life balance. Maybe I need to set healthy, you know, boundaries around my day or implement more self-care within my week to help me feel energized again. And at the same time, you know, can I have that conversation with my boss or my organization and how are they making sure that they check in and they're balancing out my time and workload so that I'm not put in a position or I don't feel like, well, you know, I've got to take this on because that's what I've got to do to keep my job. And that's, that creates fear and, and, you know, we know where fear-based organizations end, end up in terms of longevity and turnover. 
Absolutely. And on the topic of leadership, um, so obviously uh, you spent some time in Australia and, and contacts of mine speak really fondly about their time at Blue Wolf being led by yourself. How did you learn to be a good leader? Thank you. So it is a skill, right? Leadership, you know, one can argue there are natural born leaders. And maybe I could say that I probably had a propensity early on in my career to inspire others and to motivate others. But it wasn't until I took uh, a course at uh, Duke University, a very well-respected university here in their business school around leadership, where I realized that I could form a uh, a model or really have a, a tool, another tool in my tool belt to help me with leadership. And so if you want, I can I can share you the, the six domains of leadership, if that would be helpful. Yeah. So let's talk about the six domains of leadership. This model is a model that I learned at Duke University, and it was very insightful because until then, I had probably read multiple articles and Harvard Business Review cases around leadership. And I took a lot of perspective from each one of those, but I never once saw a comprehensive model that I think to this day, I've not been able to break. So that leadership model consists of six components. The first is personal leadership, and that's being authentic. You often hear you know, about authentic leadership. So this is bringing your true self to work, preparing and projecting who you are as a leader, your competencies, your skills, and that elicits credibility, right? So authentic leadership really brings out credibility in yourself to others. The second component of leadership that's at the base of this triangle that I talked about is relational leadership. So how do you demonstrate real care, respect, and concern and put, you know, understand and have empathy for the people that you lead, right? And that's, that elicits trust. So how does that person understand that you have their best interests at heart? You understand their intrinsic and extrinsic values. What motivates them? Where do they want to take their career? You've got to build that relationship. The third component of leadership in this model is something I'd never heard before, and it made complete sense to me, and that's contextual leadership. So how do we define roles and responsibilities? How does this organization work cohesively and together, right? So if you can think of the maestro of the orchestra, they're having all these instruments play at a certain time, but, you know, it's cohesive, right? And everybody understands what their role is and how they have to play and show up. That elicits community, right? So you think about the aspect of, we talked about culture building and community. So now I feel a part of something. I feel like, I understand the goal and vision. I know who my leader is and they understand me and have my best interests, right? That's the basis of this leadership paradigm. The second one from that is what I call raise the roof and be the floor, be the stable floor for me. So raise the roof is inspire. How do I help inspire people, motivate them, you know, help them think about, you know, well, why couldn't you be a CTA? right? Let's find a path for you. Wow, that's okay. Let's do that. That inspirational aspect of leadership creates aspiration in others, right? When you have high-performing organizations, there are people in that organization that that want to aspire to do better or have, you know, other career goals. And then I talked about the being the floor, the stable floor, and that's supportive leadership. So how does one provide resources, give constructive feedback? This is a really interesting one because I found organizations that do this really well with supportive leadership. It elicits um, initiative in people. So, you know, I I, I was talking to um, a company who I help coach and, and, you know, advise. They said, you know, we've got some great people but they aren't taking initiative. I have to tell them to do every single thing. And I was like, wait a second, are you are you being supportive with them? Are you providing them resources? Are you protecting them saying like, look, 
go after this, give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. We'll, we'll talk about it. I'll give you feedback and we can iterate. Do they feel safe in their environment to be able to take calculated risks? And she was like, wow, Anika, you're, you're right. Like, I haven't done that. I haven't provided that safe environment. So that's that supportive aspect of leadership. And finally, at the pinnacle of this triangle is ethic, ethical leadership. And that's, you know, be the exemplary model of behavior you want to elicit. To Karen's point, when she said, look, I, I want you to take the work, you know, the time off and, and really be off at that time, she was being the model of that behavior and that elicits stewardship. So to your question earlier, is leadership, you know, a skill that you have or is it a skill that you can learn? I believe all these skills, you know, we aren't taught these things necessarily in life. Maybe some of these things that we learn in life or learn through work. But in this example, you know, when I understood this model and started living and using this model, it's a tool I use every single day. And, you know, it's something that that I learned and has really impacted my career and my leadership style and I believe in today. So hopefully there are other leadership, you know, paradigms and models for those to follow out there. And, you know, you can, you can always, you can always continuously learn and develop these skills. Hey, Karen, from, from your angle of, of development and, and coaching and mentoring, like, do you need all of those? Like, do you think you can, like, if you don't have um, the inspiring part, right? Because I think, like I, I have been honest with Anika in the past. Like I don't, I don't love managing people. Like I, it drains me of energy. I, I feel that would probably be my weakness. Is, is um, you know, is building a, a, a like inspiring others and, and things like that. Like I'm very um, focused on my own tasks. But is that something that you know? Can I still be a good leader if I can't inspire? Or do you need to have the whole kind of repertoire of skills? Ben, I don't, I don't think you need to have every one of these in space. You knowing where. You may have some strengths and to Anika's point, these are skills that anyone could learn. It's just a matter of, you know, some of them will come easy to others, like empathy might, relationship building might, uh, ethics and or being a model might, whereas others are inspiring or storytelling. Inspiration is a blend of so many things and you giving people space and time might be inspiring. You looking around and providing feedback might be inspiring. In, inspiration can look a lot of different ways. So I, I think all of these are very, very valuable traits for a leader. And I don't think anybody has them all. Yeah. And I think as a leader, understanding that these are components of leadership, we all have our strengths within this. By the way, when I did this exercise, I had a 360 review of where I, you know, had had excelled in, or let's say have a, a greater strength in, and where I needed to develop this skill. Like apparently I was horrible in developing relationships. News to me, but it was really good for me to understand because that's where I put my time and effort in trying to be better in building authentic relationships. But my point is as a leader, understanding this, you know, if you feel like you're not maybe the most inspirational. You're built. You, you have a podcast, which you're bringing <laughs> on people to inspire others, right? So, you can bring in team members. You can have components of that throughout your leadership team, or you can, you know, do these type of events that bring that aspect into the mix uh, in leading your teams. Yeah, you don't so have true. to be everything. You just yeah. have to recognize it and bring that into your organization. I believe um, you put your hand up for the MD role in Australia. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. Because you'd never been an MD before. And I guess it's progression and, you, and you'd seen progression within the business, right? So you'd gone from consulting yeah. through to, to the level you're at. Um, did you ever kind of doubt yourself um, when you were putting your hand up and taking on that challenge? Because it wasn't like a straightforward, you know, come in and, and just keep the, the ship sailing in the same direction, right? It was There was a, a challenge to overcome. Yeah, there was a challenge to overcome. I, you know, I had first come to Australia to help turn around the delivery business. So I head up delivery and, you know, there was a big turnaround of the business. So there was a quite a number of challenges there. And the MD of the company had left. So this is just a little backstory to, to the question that you have. And I was asked by our CEO to, to go and, you know, Anika, why don't you go and interview for an MD? 
So I was going through the paces of interviewing people and I thought to myself, wait a second, why aren't, why aren't I not like putting my hand up for this, right? I'm qualified. I have trust within the organization. I've, you know, have the pedigree and the skills and the ability. And I really did believe in myself. At that time, I did not doubt myself at all. I was like, I know I can do this job. I've been doing this job. I'm going to put my hat in the ring. And so I did. And I got the job. And to your point, you know, with every step in a career, there isn't a handbook or a guidebook, right? There is no handbook of how to start, you know, how to be an MD of this organization growing from X to Y in Australia. You know, there's no guidebook, but you have the experiences of the past. And I think also what was important is I had incredible mentors and support by folks like Karen, our CEO. And the other thing is I was very much goal-oriented. And if I have to leave, you know, one nuggets of, of or pieces of information to listeners there, goal setting is so important. And so you asked me, like, did you doubt yourself? I didn't because I was focused on my goal. And I knew that maybe I didn't know everything and was probably going to make some mistakes along the way. I'm sure of that, which I did. But I trusted myself that I would have these, you know, the people around me, the resources. And the belief in myself and, and my experience to make the right decisions and to push that goal forward. So that's, you know, that's what I did. Karen, to that point, so um, Anika put her hand up, right? So she was interviewing other people for the job and then put her hand up. But is that the employee employee's responsibility to have, like, obviously, yes, have goals? and, and um, But is a talent development plan something an individual should have? Or is it like a combined effort with the business? And should the business, you know, see that potential and see where Anika was heading and, and you know, m- maybe um, uh, take her as the first candidate rather than and a candidate needing to put their hand up? Yeah, I'll, I'll break that. I'll break that down in, in a couple of different ways. I, I always think it's the responsibility of the employee to foster their own path forward. Now, with that being said. All or many organizations create paths, career paths, so that people could see the guiding posts and how they could develop their careers. But many times those are torn out, looked upon, and that what the employee winds up seeing is from here to here, from this step to that step, it's 255 days, it's three years, it's seven days and counting. And it becomes a time exercise rather than an experience exercise. Okay, it's not that they've got their heart rate up or that they closed this deal or they they worked on this cloud in this industry. It looks like it's a waiting game and it becomes disengaging. But if you want to engage an employee and a company, if they want to engage with and design a career path, there's a couple of things that you want to take into account, which are the things that Anika was talking about. She was curious about the job. She was clever about the way she would solve the problems. She's creative. And everything that led her up to this, every reason why she got any other promotion was going to be the same reason why she was going to get this next one. Why it wasn't offered to her, we can unpack that differently. I think um, she was a visitor. We didn't know she wanted to live in Australia for that many more years. We really thought she'd want to come home. And eventually we did drag her her home. So, (laughs) um, and it was also... Touch it's a little scary. Um, our, our time in Australia started off as an acquisition. And when we transplant people from the mothership back into the countries, it's often seen as it, it breaks trust in the country. Anika did not do that. She landed, built trust up. And so it was interesting how that all worked out. And it was great. When I look at it, an individual employee and I think about what it is that helps them move and navigate their careers. Listen, when I was asked to go get these graduates certified and 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 become consultants, yeah, I, I guess I had some threads and some arrows back there, but I had never done it before. But my brand, my loyalty, I had competencies. There was an organizational need. Anika and I both state and, and rise to those organizational needs and they're strategic and we have a passion. If you have some form of competency, which is your records, organizational need and a passion, I think that's how you drive through your career path. 
And that's what, you know, you, you mentioned it, like a lot of people, and, and I see it all over in consulting, they change jobs every th- three years. And so, you know, you talk about career paths and career goals, you know, are you attaining your goal? Are you changing your job because you want to attain your goal in your career and that option is not viable at your current situation? Have you had the difficult conversation, which is, by the way, a tough skill, with your manager to say, look, I really like this company, but I I want to contribute more. And here are the ways that I want to contribute. I do think it's the duality. It's, again, the responsibility of you and how you you understand where you want to be, what skills that you have to offer, right? How do you want to help the company in their strategic goals? At the same time, alongside, hey, let's can can our next one-on-one be a career goal, you know, and path conversation, Miss or Mister Manager? Like sometimes, you know, we're going along as managers too. We're going along our business and we're running our business, and things, you know, may get forgotten. Remind them, have the conversation, get in front of it, because you may not know that they've got initiatives that they're planning six months out. And you're perfect for them, right? There was a point in time where I was like, "Ah, I'm kind of bored at Blue Wolf. And I like, boom, this opportunity came up to Australia. I didn't even have a thought of going to Australia on vacation. And that's not a knock on Australia. I just had not even thought about that possibility in my career, right? So it wasn't until I had the conversation that, you know, hey, there's a strategic initiative. Can you go and help? And I was like, okay. Yeah, wow. And we'll, we'll touch on the, the tough um, the, the tough skills shortly. But you, you left um, Blue Wolf, and I'm sure at that point there would be no kind of shortage of opportunities. Um, so how, how, for you, I guess there, you know, there, there would have been a whole host of companies um, looking for someone like yourself. How important was it for you at that stage to kind of really focus in on your values and match those to an opportunity? And, and then I guess that leads me on to Camp 4 and, and how that, um, that aligned yeah. to those values. It wasn't until, you know, so I took some time off after my time at, at Blue Wolf and IBM to do a little bit of self-discovery. And within that time, you know, when I was thinking about opportunities, I thought about what do I want to do next? There was a lot of opportunities that said, hey, come and run our practice. And I was like, that's that's cool. You know, okay, this is interesting. And then I went back to some of my core basics, which are you know, a values exercise. And I highly encourage you, anybody who's listening to this, type up values, find a list of values and sit there and highlight the values that resonate to you. Because values help, for me at least, when I make a decision in my life, it might be a career, it might be moving to a new city, it might be a relationship even. Do the values align um, within, you know, myself and and what that company has to offer or that position has to offer? It was really apparent to me as I was, you know, talking to companies and I had this one incredible role, this amazing company, big title, you know, all the fanfare along with it. And I was, as I was progressing with the interview and the recruiter said to me, Anika, you're, you're the first pick. I just had this like, pit and not in my stomach. I said, something doesn't feel right here. I don't know what it is like this. Everybody would be jumping up and down at this opportunity. And I pulled out my values list and I realized this just doesn't align. This isn't going to work for me. I had to decline, decline that offer. And, you know, I was having conversations with Karen and Glenn for the past year. And I started looking at, you know, wow, camp four. Okay. So Number one, I believe in the leadership. You know, I, I, I know who they are, which helps, but I believe in their strategy. I understand that this role will, like, I'll be able to make a real impact. And that was something really important to me. I didn't want to have a role where, you know, there was going to be a, a role where I could make a big impact in the company. The next thing was, I truly believed in the services. So when I think about tech skills, yes, you know, I had to get the certifications, et cetera, but the tough skills, I wasn't a classically trained consultant that came up the ranks of a grad program into, you know, the McKinsey's and 
I didn't have that formalized training. Yes, I had a good business background, but it wasn't until the enablement programs that Karen and her teams led that I found, you know, and I talk about the development program at Duke, that I upped my skills. And that gave me incredible competency, incredible confidence, and helped me in my career. And so I'm, you know, you talked about it, Karen, passion. When I think about these programs, I'm passionate about them because they had impacts, an impact on me personally. And so the ability to help others, to be of service to others is really important. And then finally, our mission to impact a million careers. That's real to me. I mean, you know, this is when I go to bed at night, I, and I don't mean to sound cheesy, but I feel like this is a dream to be able to work and do a job where I'm going to help people and give people opportunities. It's not, you know, I look at, at the cost of education and I know Australia is a little bit different, but university is so expensive here. There's a lot of privilege that comes with getting those, you know, high paying consultancy jobs and through programs like ours to be able to level play the field, the field in that, to be able to give people opportunities, you know, is really incredible to me. So that's, that's ultimately why I chose Camp 4. It aligns with my career goals, aligns with my values. And, you know, I'm totally passionate in aligning to the the mission of helping people in this ecosystem. Nice. And uh, tough skills, uh, Karen. I know um, a lot of people call them soft skills and, and there's no shortage of people out there and, and companies offering, you know, help and coaching around certifications and, and, and really focusing on the tech. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, Udemy courses, there's all of these things, but the, the skills that are, are most lacking, I guess, and, and, often the hardest to come by are, are what you describe as tough skills. So what are they um, and why are they so important right now? So interesting. Uh, one of the projects that Anik and I first started working together on, we were implementing Salesforce together. I would pick her up at the train and we would drive over there to our clients. So the other project that we worked on very early was developing consultants at, and together we put together a program and we met with them bi-weekly. We taught them skills about our methodology and we just coached them and we were happier doing that than we were happy than anything else that we were doing. So it's so nice to see a decade later that our company is just strictly focused on that core, that the center of what made us so happy and that we were so passionate about. But these tough skills are the difference. They're the critical difference. They're the criteria between being a configurator and being a consultant. They're really what customer relationship management needs. And I don't mean that in the technical sense. If you want to build a relationship, if you want to become a trusted advisor, if you want to be a great manager, if you want to be an empathetic leader, these are the skills and the skills change role by role as you progress your career up, out, sideways, whichever way that monkey bar that you decide to go down the path that where your where your um, your competencies, the organizational needs, and the passions come into play, there will be another skill set that you need, and these are tough skills. So. Ben, you mentioned, hey, I don't really want to be a manager. And you shouldn't be if you don't want to be. No one should be pushed into management. Management should be a privilege around people who want to do certain things. It's not the skills that got you there that are going to push you into management. It's a whole other set of skills. So I think that tough skills, when I'm looking at it as being a world-class consultant, it's being confident, it's being able to present, it's being able to facilitate and collaborate, to have difficult conversations, to ask open questions and be curious. But more importantly, learn how to listen. Listening is such an active, difficult, tough skill, and you need it. You need it in every level that will go up, you know? Listening to who's speaking, not to yourself and preparing your next question. You know, it's also a tough skill in the beginning of your career is identifying your personal brand. How do you want to be represented? How do you want to be remembered? Why are you in the room? And that helps you with your introductions. There's another tough skill about management. It's key. Management is key to employee engagement. 
you're going to be working one-on-one -on -one with your employees. And that's where you need to have understanding. You have to have great communication. You need to learn how to coach. I think there's a tough skill at the organizational level, at leadership, you know, where transparency, and Nika spoke about some of these as being inspiring or being supportive, being both at the same time. And then as an organization itself is setting these spaces, that's a tough skill. We, we opened with culture, learning how to navigate with, admire and support your culture as an organization, that's a tough skill. These are small nuances. These tough skills, when someone has them, you can't put your finger on it. You just know that they've either inspired you, supported you, built a relationship with you, helped you understand something, helped guide you through a decision that was difficult, shed light on something, made you aware of something, provided feedback. These are all tough skills. And when they are used correctly, they really are the things that will propel you through your career. And they're also the things that you have to practice. That's another belief we have at Camp 4, professional teams practice. These tough skills don't fall out of your mouth in a flowing way, and you don't know how to control them until you practice. So a lot of what we do is um, something where we learn. That's Learning is you can observe, you can read, you can watch a video. Labbing is where you practice your skills. You shouldn't practice in front of your clients. It's really not a best practice. Right? <laughs> Don't do it. They <laughs> scrimmage against each other. That's all good. But when the game is on, the game is on. And if you have a bill rate of what we're asking in this market, probably don't want to be practicing in front of your customer. So professional teams practice these tough skills and they make it a safe space for people to learn. It builds the culture, it builds engagement. I went on a world tour in, in which we rolled out a series of tough skills. We called it world-class consulting and world-class um, facilitation. And, there was, and it impacted so many people and it really upped our game. It changed the way we were presented in the market. It helped solidify and amplify our brands, our personal brands and our professional um, company brand. So I think it it is it should be a goal of organizations to toughen their skills uh, and and both it will help them in business outcomes and it will help them with employee engagement. If, if you um, could think, because obviously there, there are a lot of tough skills, right? There, there are a whole um, list of those and, and um, not everyone's going to have all of them um, and, you know, they can be developed and that's, that's where you come in and help people develop them. But if you look back at, at the career you've had and, and the hiring that you've done, were there like, like maybe two or three that were non-negotiable when you were hiring that, that you know, you would always look for in, in a potential employee and, and that could, could, I guess, go to both of you? Yeah, so I, we're asked that a lot because when we're working with um, systems integrators who are bringing the new talent to us, they ask, you know, what would be an ideal candidate for us to get so that you could teach them tech and the tough skills. And I want to let them know that um, you should always hire for a cultural fit. You know, that's that's a great opportunity you have is does this person work well in our organization? And once they pass that threshold, is are they curious? Curiosity will tell us that they will want to continue to learn and that they are interested in learning our clients' business and our own and our own business. Are they clever? They figure things out. Are they resourceful? Okay. So when you ask them, we we always ask our candidates to prepare a presentation for us. What did they do to prepare? How how much did they care? And um, and then the last one is creativity. I think it takes you have to be able to apply another level of understanding in order to be creative. Okay, you don't always take the first way to solve a problem. And so are you that shows that you're willing to go above, iterate, try different things to get to the most creative, optimized solution. And I think curiosity, being clever and creative are other things people should look for. You feel the same way, Anika? Yeah. In fact, I, I just want to touch on something. You know, when we think about this space, we often look for candidates in the technology space. I didn't come from technology. I came from marketing background. Karen, did you come from technology? No, I was an art major, business major. And you told me a story about a chocolatier that we hired. 
yeah, we want it, we want diversity. Diversity will help problem solve. But this is someone who taught themselves, you know, how to how to make chocolates. So I was so interested. Their resume was so interesting too. It was graphical. I remember it. I've I've seen thousands of of resumes and and I remember the interview. He was he was on a sport. He was in crew. He was the one that yells out coxswain. So like he was bold. He was willing to take risks. He was a leader. And when you see those qualities, you can teach anybody tech and you can teach and and those people are always willing to be self-improved. So tough is is the next layer. It's interesting as well, like talking through the like obviously the the self-improvement and uh, you know looking at picking up these tough skills and developing them. But I find a lot of people I speak to that are already in the ecosystem don't think like that. You know, they don't think about developing but are continuing to develop those tough skills. So when I speak to someone about moving jobs, a lot of the time it's not how can I become a better consultant? It's often about can, what other Salesforce products can I work on as an example. And and the the scary thing is, you know. Salesforce mm-hmm. is an amazing platform right now, and, and hopefully the growth continues. But it's the consulting skills that people will really value in, you know, ten years time. If Salesforce isn't the platform of choice right then, um, because then they're the skills that are transferable right into another technology. I agree a hundred percent. That's um, these world class skills and t- these tough skills that we're that we're teaching the, the the art of becoming a consultant, a trusted advisor, a manager, or a leader, is really what um, will make you stand out as you move through an organization or move around to different organizations. I always recommend moving through and inside of an organization. I was lucky enough to have five careers in my 18 year span. And a lot of those, as Anika will attest to, we got, we had opportunities that if I had to submit my resume, I, I wasn't the ideal candidate for but they're willing to take a risk on me because of the way I performed, what my personal brand was, my understanding of the business. And and I think, you know, to your point about any leveling up or skilling up, you know, you, you've got to do some self-work, right? You don't just show, like for, I'll give you a great story. When I went to Australia, I started doing a lot of press. I was in the Australian and, and doing big stages and world tours. And I realized I did what exactly what Karen said not to do is I showed up to some event and I was like, I had what is known, and I now know this, as amygdala hijack. The minute that camera went on, I went blank. I had practiced. Right. Yeah, I had pra- I'm admitting it now on this podcast. No. Um, I was probably watching, I had, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, I had practiced and I just went blank and I forgot everything that I, all my words, everything that I had practiced and I realized, oh no, I need help. Right. So it's important that whatever that skill is, because every time you're, you're, you know, you're changing careers or you're going up the, the, the ranks, whatever that is and going up the ranks, by the way, there's a lot of ways to change your career and be successful. It's not just going up the ranks, by the way. Right. That does not determine success. But in that, I realized at every level I had to update new skills. Right. This was not like public speaking on this level where you've got cameras and lights at you and teleprompters and a thousand or 2000 people was not something I was used to. I could speak in a room of a hundred people. That was fine. 200, no problem. So what I did was I, in Sydney, I had a friend who owns the, I think it's the HubSpot studio and they are acting coaches. And I said, mate, can you give me some help? <laughs> I'll give you some free consulting. We bartered. I'll give you some free strategic consulting about growing your business. You give me some services and we practice. I mean, we had cameras on me. He recorded me. He walked me through what to do when I felt that amygdala hijack. You know, he really coached me through that process. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't like a one-hour thing and I was done and on the stage at Dreamforce. It was work. And and I want people to realize at every point in your career, everything that you do, you have to work at it. It doesn't come automatically. You just don't show up that way. You know, these are skills and, and those are skills like at that I had built, you know, I'd done the tough skills. I'd done the world-class facilitation. I felt good and confident, but I realized as I, you know, at that time, I needed further upskilling in these new things, right? And how to talk to press, how to talk to PR. I'm still learning. 
I'm learning on this podcast. I'm going, hmm, okay, Nika, make some mental notes here. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a reflection of who you are as a person, right? Investing in yourself and wanting to learn. Now, this episode uh, will be aired on, on International Women's Day. Um, and it's amazing to have you both as guests. And I'm sure, you know, there, there are people that I've spoken to that you've inspired um, and you'll continue to inspire with the work that you're doing right now. But I'm interested to know who has inspired you and, and helped you both get to the the level and, and uh, achieve the successes that you have in your career. I'll start. Um, mine will be a simple story. Um, I, I was inspired by, I, I had a lot of support in, like I mentioned earlier, that I was developing a, a, a career at the same time as, as a family. And so I had a lot of support with people who allowed me to try to balance that. And and I was a guinea pig for, I was the first woman and, and the first person at Blue Wolf. So I was adamant about designing a maternity policy. And I was adamant about putting support structures in so that other people could benefit um, and and grow and not leave their careers to start a family. And if they if that's what they chose to do, I always say keep your toe in the water so the water doesn't get too cold. Who taught me that and who inspired me was my mom. First off, she was my mom. <laughs> she still is. Uh, married mother, worker, one generation here, first generation here, and um, and just tackled things. Was brave. Was a people person and. Um, and just, I, I look at her career trajectory and the way that she managed it, it, it was, um, while raising us, was very, very impressive and inspiring. For me, you know, it would be easy to say there's this specific person or that specific person. And, and it's not so much the case. I mean, I can name people like, for example, Karen had a major impact in my consulting career. She was just incredibly supportive. She always had her door open to me. Thank you, Karen. And even if it meant, you know, the 2 a.m. phone calls from Australia, she just, I just felt like she had my back and she had my personal best interests at heart. And, and we would be really honest with each other. And that's something that, you know, I don't think that you can necessarily have with a lot of people. And, and you have, a, you know, certain, certain mentors and, and people that inspire you, you have a chemistry with them, right? And a rapport. And so I'm very grateful for that. Thank you, Karen. And when I think about something else and I reflected upon this question, who inspires me? When I was in Australia, I, I made a big strategic decision to bring on diversity into the organization. And when I say diversity, look, diversity is not just skin color or background. It's not, it's, it's all types of diversity. But this specific piece was bringing in more females to the workplace, specifically technical developers, solution architects, which as you know, Ben, it's tough in a market like Australia. And it's it's tough in general. You know, I, I started this, you know, just very informal bi-weekly. We'd have a women's lunch and we'd go out for lunch, just, you know, all of us and have a chat. And then some of the men started joining and it just became this thing that we did. And, and there was culture that was built in the organization. And so when I left, as Karen said, you know, not wanting to go. And unfortunately, I really didn't want to leave. And I had those tearful moments and, you know, the big card and everybody gathering around. I realized as people and I were having conversation and, and sharing our goodbyes, that one of the biggest sources of inspiration were my teams. So my mentees and my teams and the people that I led. And to this day, you know, if I have a really tough day, I will open up a card, I will read a note and, and I'll go like, this is why you're doing this. Like, this is why they, in a way, you know, as much as I felt like maybe I'm helping develop them, I'm helping mentor them, I'm helping inspire them. They were all along the ones that were my greatest cheerleaders and, and supporting me and makes me a little verklempt, <laughs> makes me a little emotional, but it's a truth. It's, it's something that's really cool. And I think that's the whole, the whole point of relationships. It's not just one-sided, right? Inspiration like is not just one-sided. It goes both ways. And it still remains. I'll, like I said to you previously, um, 
I have a friend in Sydney that worked for you and uh, and they said this will be the only podcast episode of mine that they'll listen to because you're <laughs> because you're on it. So uh, thank you both so much. Uh, honestly, really, really have enjoyed the chat and um, I'm really excited to see how the business evolves and and the value that you continue to provide to the ecosystem and how um, how getting to that hundred hundred uh, impacted careers uh, number how how quickly that comes and goes because I'm sure it will. Thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate it. Ben, it was a pleasure getting to hear your accent and to spend some time with you and share some of our thoughts. Um, it was it was truly enjoyable, and uh, yeah. we look forward to hearing it live. Thank you very much. And just just finally, before you go, if anyone does yeah. have any questions or wants to reach out um, and ask anything about the business or your journeys or just anything mm-hmm. you've said today, where where's the best platform for them to contact you? I would say LinkedIn would probably be the best. Yeah, feel free to message me on LinkedIn. Happy to chat. I do have a Calendly link I can send you. We can schedule a call and always happy to have a chat and and help in any way that I can. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. We're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible, and your reviews will help us do that.